Section 22 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Eve. Chapter 5, Part 4. Before the door was open, Julien was on his feet and vigorously repelled the most zealous of the intruders. The young man, thus roughly treated, drew his sword, calling him a clown, and his companions followed his example. Julien did not take the time to draw his. He defended himself with his cane and used it with such self-possession, skill, and strength that one of the assailants fell, and the others retreated. Julien, who had not left the step, took advantage of this respite to enter the cab and take Julie out by the opposite door. He took her in his arms and carried her some distance. Then he turned to await his adversaries, but whether because some of them had received a serious wound or because the approach of the watch sobered them, they made off as rapidly as possible in the opposite direction. "'Let us walk, madam,' said Julien. "'Let us avoid the curiosity of the police.' Julie walked rapidly and well. If fear had paralyzed her for an instant, the sight of the danger to which her protector was exposed had restored her energy. After taking a somewhat roundabout course to throw the watch off the scent, they arrived safely on the Nouveau Cours, now Boulevard des Invalides. It was completely deserted and dimly lighted by lanterns. Julie did not notice a stain on her glove, but she felt the moisture of blood on her wrist and stopped abruptly, exclaiming, Oh, mon Dieu, you're wounded! Julien felt nothing. He was very sure that nothing serious had happened to him. He wrapped his bruised hand in his handkerchief and offered Julie his other arm. "'I swear to you that I am not wounded,' he said, "'and suppose I were. Unfortunately, those fellows were not very formidable, and I deserve little credit for ridding you of them. Coxcombs, dandies, and they bear titles of nobility in all likelihood. Do you detest the nobility so very bitterly?' "'I detest them?' No, but I abhor impertinence, and as such fellows are not always willing to fight a duel with plebeians, I am very glad to have beaten them as a bargeman might have done. Alas, said Julie, thinking aloud, nevertheless they are at liberty to insult and trample on the weak. The weak? Who are the weak, pray? rejoined Julien, mistaking the meaning of her words. People without a name? Undeceive yourself, madam, they are the ones to whom the future belongs, because they have the right, true justice on their side, and with all the determination to put an end to the abuses of the past. Julie did not understand, but she trembled anew. This time, however, she was not afraid of disagreeable encounters, but of an indefinable, mysterious force which seemed to emanate from Julien. She glanced furtively at him. She fancied that she could see his face glow in the darkness, and that her feeble hand was resting on the arm of a giant. But Julien was a simple-hearted youth, an artist without ambition in the practical affairs of life on his own account. He did not feel called upon to play a conspicuous part in the revolutionary tempests. He looked forward to no other labor for himself than that of studying the charms of nature all his life. That awe-inspiring power with which he was endowed in Julie's eyes was simply the reflection of the divine power on the mind of the new class. He was one of the hundred thousand among the millions of disappointed and soured men who were about to say on the first opportunity, The cup is full, the past has had its day. The brief allusion he had just made to this general frame of mind among men of his class, a subject 
which was in every mouth at that time seemed to madame d'estrel a most impressive prophecy from the lips of an exceptional man it was the first time that she had ever heard any one speak defiantly and contemptuously of what she had always considered invincible the species of superstitious terror which she felt was blended with fervent trust with a longing to lean the more heavily on that sturdy arm which under the impulsion of a noble heart had fought alone in her cause against four swords so you think she said still walking rapidly that one can shake off the yoke of this unjust world which oppresses men's consciences and condemns true principles i would like to agree with you that is likely to happen you believe it already since you desire to believe it possibly but when will it happen no one can say when or by what means what is just and right cannot fail to happen but what does it matter to you madam whether all this lasts fifty or a hundred years longer are you not one of those who profit innocently by the misfortunes of others oh i profit by nothing i have nothing of my own and i am nobody in society but you are of society you belong to it it owes you protection and it will never wound you in your own person who knows said julie then fearing that she had said too much she changed the subject by recurring to the scene which had just taken place when i think she said what a great disaster might have happened to you just now ah oh, your poor mother how she would have cursed me if i had been the cause no madam that could not have happened replied julien i had right on my side and you believe that providence interposes in such cases yes since providence is with us it gives us strength and a presence of mind a man who defends a woman's honour against scoundrels has all the chances on his side courage comes very easy to him he feels that he cannot succumb what faith you have exclaimed julie deeply touched yes i remember you said at my house the other day that faith would move mountains and that you were faith personified the other day julien repeated ingenuously that was more than a month ago julie dared not pretend not to know how many days and nights had passed since that brief interview so she said nothing julien carried his respect for her so far as not to continue the conversation himself and the longer the silence endured the less able was julie to summon the presence of mind to break it without betraying the emotion she felt at last they reached the pavilion do you not think he said that you should take your arm from mine now so that your people may not see me then i will follow you at a little distance until i have seen your door close behind you yes she replied but what will my people think to see me returning alone and on foot at such an hour the best way is for me to go through the pavilion and through my garden then they will think that monsieur marcel brought me back that way that seemed in truth the best plan julien had his key in his pocket i will go and wake my mother he said and tell her to get up for i told her as i passed not to sit up for me she thinks that i've been to take supper with marcel don't wake her i forbid it to tell her all our adventures would take too long now she would be distressed perhaps being half asleep to-morrow you can tell her everything open the garden door for me and i will run home without making any noise thanks and adieu to pass through the narrow passageway leading from the street door to the garden door inside the pavilion they had to walk several seconds in absolute darkness in that straitened household no lamps were kept burning needlessly and babette came for the day only and did not sleep in the house 
Julien went first, opened the garden, bowed low to Madame d'Estrelle, and immediately closed the door to prove to her that he never used it and that he should not presume to follow her even with his eyes along the paths through which she glided like a ghost. Such perfect discretion, such unswerving respect, such delicate, thoughtful, untiring, really serviceable devotion touched Madame d'Estrelle profoundly. It was a magnificent June night. She knew that by knocking on the window of her bedroom, which was on the ground floor, looking on the garden, she could summon Camille, who was sitting up for her. She knew, too, that Camille's vigil consisted in enjoying a good nap on the best couch in the apartment. She thought that she might, without unkindness, allow her to keep vigil in that way a few moments more, and feeling that her heart was overflowing with emotion, her mind fairly drowned by conflicting thoughts, she could not resist the temptation to sit down beside the basin in which the moon was reflected clear and motionless, as in a Venetian mirror. The nightingale had ceased to sing. It was sleeping on its young brood. All was still, and the young zephyr, the night breeze of those days, was slumbering so sweetly that it did not even stir a blade of grass. Paris, too, was asleep, at all events the tranquil quarter of which the Hôtel d'Estrelle marked the outer limit. The sounds of the country were more audible than were those of the city. At that hour they were confined to an occasional cock-crow and the barking of a dog in the distance at long intervals. The clocks rang out in clear tones, answering one another from convent to convent, and everything relapsed into blissful silence, and if one could hear the distant rumbling of a carriage on the pavement of the real Paris, it resembled the dull murmur of the waves, rather than a sound produced by human activity. Julie, tired out and slightly bewildered, breathed deep of the tranquillity of the night, of that perfume of solitude with the keenest pleasure. She fixed her eyes on a great white star which shone near the moon and was reflected in the same basin. At first she sat there without thinking, oblivious of everything, enjoying absolute repose. Soon her heart began to beat so violently that it pained her. First she felt hot and cold. She rose to go away. She went to her bedroom window, but she did not knock. She returned to the stone bench. She sat down and wept. Then she rose and walked around the basin like a soul in torment. At last she stopped, smiling like a soul at peace. She consented to question herself, and when her heart replied, I love, she was frightened and forbade it to speak. Then she called her conscience to account for that terror, that shrinking austerity, opposed to the laws of nature and useless to God, her conscience replied that it had nothing to do with it and that the obstacle was not due to it but to the reason, a sort of artificial conscience wherein God and nature gave precedence to conventional ideas, fear, selfish scheming, precautions due to misapprehension of one's real interests. In this order of reasoning, everything was expressed in terms of six-franc pieces. Marcel had reason on his side in view of the actual facts. So the heart must be sacrificed to the most sordid of facts, to the implacable menace of poverty. No, said Julie to herself, that shall not be. If necessary, I will sell everything. I will have nothing of my own. I will work, but I will love, even though I have to ask alms. Besides, he will work for three, who works now for two. He will undertake that burden. He will be overjoyed to do it if he loves me. In his place I should be so overjoyed. Julie began to walk again with increasing agitation. 
Does he love me as much as that? Does he love me with the passion that I thought that I detected the first day? Ah, oh, that is the question that I ask myself incessantly. That's all that troubles me. That is something that neither my conscience nor my reason nor my heart can tell me. Perhaps he has only a friendly feeling for me, for he's a good son, and he is grateful to me for what I tried to do for his mother. He owes me gratitude, and he proves his gratitude by admirable devotion. And what then? Why should he love me madly? Why should he want to pass his life at my feet? He has no craving for it, for he's never at hand except on occasions when I may need him. The rest of the time he gives his mind to his real duties, his work, his mother, perhaps to some girl of his own station who will bring him a comfortable dowry. Whereas I, a poor, ruined... But am I ruined? If my husband's father has provided for my future, I am still a grand dame. And in that case, in that case, everything in my dream is changed. I forget this young man who is not suited to me. I marry a man in society at my choice. I am proud and happy. I love without perplexity and without shame. Oh, yes. But now it is he, no stranger, no other than he whom I love. It is he alone, and I do not know whether one can be cured of that. I do not know if one ever forgets. I fear not, since the more I try, the more utterly I fail. The more I defend myself, the more completely I am beaten. My God, my God, in all this there is but one real fear, one real torture, and that is the fear that he does not love me. How shall I find out? Perhaps I shall never find out. Can I live without it? End of section 22, read by Sandra. Montreal, 2021.